And welcome to WISO Weekend, WISO's weekly radio magazine. I'm Jerry Kenny. Thanks for joining us on this fine Sunday. Coming up on today's program, we've got news stories out this week from the Eichelberger Center for Community Voices, Culture Couch, Dayton Youth Radio, and Veterans Voices. We'll also hear a report from Side Effects Public Media on how opioids affect our bodies and the misconceptions therein as the opioid epidemic continues to hit communities across the Midwest. Those stories and more coming up in the next half hour. Up first, a coalition of organizations formed after the Memorial Day tornado outbreak gathered on Thursday to provide updates on disaster recovery progress. After the meeting, we spent some time with Laura Mercer, executive director of the Miami Valley Long-Term Recovery Operations Group, to get some of those updates. So as of today, we have uh, 724 cases that have come in through our front door at 211 um, in disaster case management. Uh, 95% of those are in Montgomery County, and then we have Miami, Mercer, and Greene County uh, cases as well. About half of those are homeowners, and about 68% of those uh, homeowners have indicated that they're going to need some assistance with repair and rebuilding. There was some talk today among the attendees about people still not getting the message about 211 or getting a no answer from FEMA, but you have stated that that doesn't necessarily mean help is not there for them. Help is there for anybody who was affected by the tornadoes. So um, anybody who needs assistance, even if they were insured, even if they got FEMA assistance, if they still need assistance, they should contact us and we will see what we can do to help them. There were 19 tornadoes and nearly 6,000 homes were damaged. 1,200 of those homes were destroyed or had major damage. So we know that homeowners that have called us so far is just a fraction of the people that need help. You talked about a spring rebuild campaign coming up. Give us more information on that. So in the spring, we have several uh, skilled volunteer teams that will be coming in from around the nation to help us do rebuilding. And in fact, we're going to be working with a bunch of those teams this afternoon. But folks like the Mennonites, the Amish, the Brethrens, Team Rubicon, all of those organizations will come out and they will help us with rebuilding any case-managed home that we have resourced with uh, materials and money. So uh, that's the process that we're really undertaking right now. Those being case-managed homes, they have to get into the system and and get on the radar for your organizations working together, correct? That's the critical piece right now, trying to get people into the system. So we need them to call 211 to tell them that they're tornado survivors, and uh, they'll they'll automatically complete a form for us that allows us to to reach out with a case manager. That information, then, uh, we can use to make sure that, you know, folks own their homes, they were resident at the home at the time of the tornado, and then to send a construction estimating team out to take a look at what disaster caused damage occurred and to prepare a detailed estimate on what it's going to take to help the people recover. You're holding monthly meetings with a great number of organizations in the Miami Valley involved in the recovery process, which is going to take more time. Your thoughts on these organizations in the Miami Valley and the value of their working together on a project like this, the necessity of it, and how long do you think this will go on into the future? Normal thoughts related to disaster recovery in terms of the National Voluntary Organizations Active in Disaster, a 40-year-old organization that has focused on disaster recovery. There's something called the principles of 10. So if emergency relief is needed for 10 days, and our shelters, our emergency Red Cross shelters, were open for 10 days, then you multiply that by 10, and that's the response phase. That's the immediate needs, safety, security, uh, making sure people have shelter and food. Um, 
that's about 100 days or three months. So we've now transitioned into the long-term recovery phase, which will probably take about three years. So the long-term recovery phase, that's helping individuals get back to to define what the recovery plan is and to, then to execute it and get back to a new normal. Community recovery takes longer. So community recovery, whether it's uh, affordable housing, it's looking at green spaces, it's looking at brownfield redevelopment, public infrastructure, that's a 10-year phase. Quite a challenge for any community. Yes. How do you think Miami Valley is uh, stacking up or stepping up? We have heard from national experts that we are about six months ahead of where any normal community would be in terms of recovery process. And I think that's a testament to what Dayton is in terms of our level of innovation in this community and our willingness to work together. So there are over 30 groups that are involved in the individual long-term recovery Nonprofits, jurisdictions, uh, different trade organizations, all of them working together to make this community help them recover. And so anyone not involved in uh, this group or, or reco- the recovery process so far that still has an interest, how can they get involved? So there are two, two key things that um, we'd love for the community to remember as we move forward. One is that if you have been impacted by the tornadoes, we need you to call 211 to get into the system so that we can help you. Help is available. Two, if you'd like to contribute uh, to helping us make this work happen, the best thing to do is to donate to the Dayton Foundation's Disaster Recovery Fund. That will allow us to purchase the materials that the voluntary teams will need to rebuild homes. Laura, thanks so much for the information. You're very welcome. Thank you. Those May storms last year certainly damaged or destroyed a lot of homes and took out quite a few trees as well, but not all of them. And now, if you see a huge platform of sticks up in a tall tree, the Ohio Division of Wildlife wants to hear from you. They're trying to track down every bald eagle nest in the state. WISO's Jason Saul has the story. In 1979, there were just four pairs of bald eagles left nesting anywhere in Ohio. Habitat loss and the misuse of pesticides had almost wiped the bird out. However, decades of conservation work has paid off. There are now bald eagles all over the state. And in 2012, the bird was removed from Ohio's endangered list. But 2012 was also the last time anybody actually counted the bird's nests. State biologists think there are about 350 nesting pairs in Ohio, but nobody knows for sure. Well, it's mid-February, and that means bald eagles in Ohio are nesting and laying eggs right now. So, scientists are asking the public for help. Here's Kathy Garza-Bear of the Division of Wildlife. We have a link online that you'll be able to go to and enter in where you're seeing these eagles, and then it'll ask you for the exact location. That way we can plot them on a map and get a better feel for where these birds are located. If you think you see a bald eagle nest... Add it to the survey at wildohio.gov slash report wildlife. For WYSO News, I'm Jason Saul. Just so as you know, there are a pair of nesting bald eagles that you can see right here in Dayton. Check out Orv and Willa downtown in Carillon Park. As part of Clark State's Black History Month celebrations, the community college hosted their annual Bidwist Tournament. The card game competition has been a tradition at the Springfield School for over 20 years. WISO's Lila Goldstein stopped by the tournament Thursday, and she sent us this audio postcard. 
Could you explain the game a little bit for someone that maybe doesn't know how to play? Uh, I don't have, I, I know. <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. Okay, so it's like uh, pretty much euchre on steroids. It's played very similar to bridge in some ways. So it's similar to spades, I would say. You get 13 cards. And then you pick a suit that's trump. So whether it be hearts or spades or whatever the case may be, that's your main trump. Okay, so that card beats all the other cards that's on the table. So if you trump over the other person, you get the book. You've got to get to six books before you can start closing, as they call it. Whoever has the most books wins. So. Whist, you have to have a little bit of luck in addition to skill. Pretty much that's my it's tough to explain, but since you know how to play, you just you just you've been playing so long. So right now, but that's that's basically what it is. Okay, everyone, the Trump is close. When did you learn the game? My husband taught me the game when I married him. It's been a long time ago. <laughs> Even when I was a teenager, uh huh. Back in the day, it was a good game for us. Uh huh. Forty, fifty years, maybe <laughs> a long time. I played with my family um, a few times. Um, but at my family, like, if you don't know how to play, you don't get on the tables. So. Oh, I can't even say. Many, many, many years ago. This is uh, diamonds. Diamonds. Did you have you taught any other people to play? Like, you know, younger generations or anything? I have not. I tried to teach my children, but they were not interested in card games. Not really. The younger people, they they play different games than whist. I don't know all the games they play, but they don't they don't play whist. But it seems to me that they don't like to do card games as much as we did. This used to be the game way back when, but it didn't it wasn't passed on to the young people. They're busy doing other things. It's a way to give back to not only like the younger generation, you know, learn a different game, but it also helps them like interact with elders and, you know, in that sense and also gives, you know, the elders something to do as far as honoring what they put on, you know, so yeah. No, you're not tired. You're just mad because you, you didn't win. She's a good talker. <laughs> it takes one to know one. <laughs> How did it go today? Well, we did not win. <laughs> we started off uh, like a ball of fire, and when the no trump came, it counts double, and we, we were lost in the dust. <laughs> but it was still fun. Actually, the lady there, she was my competition, and she uh, kicked my butt most of the night. But, hey, other than that, I learned the game and won a few hands. I think I got it now, so I'm, re- I'm ready for next time. <laughs> that was WISO's Lila Goldstein speaking with Stephanie Eccles, James Guerin, Reva Hutchins, Raphael Allen, Alexander McCarty, Virginia McCarty and Lillian Swain in Springfield. Clark State will continue its Black History Month celebrations with a Dance Stomp Shake event and an African-American read-in on the 27th. Information about the events can be found at clarkstate.edu. I'm Jerry Kenny. This is Why So Weekend. Exact Theater in Xenia is currently producing an Ohio premiere, The Face of Emmett Till. In 1955, Mamie Till put her only son, 14-year-old Emmett, on a train from Chicago to visit family in Mississippi. He was kidnapped and brutally murdered for allegedly flirting with a white woman. Decades later, Mamie Till Mobley co-wrote a play about her struggle. Community Voices producer David Seitz has the story of Mamie's play. 
In the late 1990s, Mamie Till Mobley called David Barr, an African-American playwright in Chicago. Joyce Barnes, the play's director for X-Act Theater in Xenia, says that even after so many years, Mamie Till Mobley still wanted to tell her story. She wanted to set the record straight. So many different versions of what happened had been out there, and she wanted to tell it the way she knew it to be. David Barr talked with Mamie Till for months and interviewed countless people related to the events. But he said he could not find the spirit of Emmett and Mamie. Finally, she told him to visit the Civil Rights Memorial in Montgomery, Alabama. And he said, why do you want me to go? And she said, because Emmett is there. And he went and he did encounter Emmett. And he said, in that moment, the play The plot, the story, everything just came together. Director Joyce Barnes calls the face of Emmett Till Mamie Till's memory play. It captures how her family said goodbye to Emmett and warned him about Mississippi. If you see a white man, just drop your head. I don't care if it makes sense or not. Don't even look them in the eye. Just drop your head. Listen to your mama, boy. She's right. The boy's got to know. Mom, you don't got to worry about me. I'll, I'll be all right. Actress Mendu Kanyile takes on the role of Mamie Till. I know in the beginning I was I was more infuriated when I was portraying her, and then I noticed that that's not Mamie. Mamie is very calm, very poised, and so I'm I have to remove myself from the anger that I feel for her, and and almost become enlightened, just as she was, to understand that maybe anger is not the way to solve things sometimes. After hearing of Emmett's death, Mamie Till found out that the police in Mississippi were trying to bury him there instead of in Chicago. A light switch comes on for her, that if we don't get Emmett back here, we'll never know what happened. And why are people going out of their way to prevent him from prevent me from seeing him. We now know that Mamie Till also faced conflict when her family sought out the support of the NAACP. It was a tough relationship. But you see, you and the NAACP have all the political machinery down there. You have all the connections. I'm just a single mother in Chicago trying to raise my boy as best as I can. Please understand, the NAACP has hundreds of cases. They are all very important. Mr. Wilkins, this is the only case that I care about. The whole Till family endured repeated death threats, obscene phone calls, and insulting letters. A police car guarded their home. All along, her family supported her decisions. They all afraid that that this fuss over Emmett is going to cause Negroes to march down to Mississippi. Well, we ought to march down there and root out every relative wet next. It's time for a change. When Mamie Till's family finally saw Emmett's body that had been tortured and sunk in the river, his face was so torn apart and swollen into a death mask that it was impossible to recognize his features. Joyce Barnes says that too many names of African Americans murdered in the Jim Crow South have been forgotten. So I think Emmett would have been one of those if she hadn't found something within her, her faith, her community, her family, to say, I want the world to see what they did. Tens of thousands of people lined the blocks of the funeral home for a week to mourn Emmett Till and see his face. When Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat three months later, she said that she was thinking of Emmett Till. 
The play The Face of Emmett Till broadens this American story and celebrates Mamie's activism and her spirit. At the theater, you can also see a pop-up exhibit from the National Afro-American Museum and Cultural Center about Jet Magazine's coverage of the Emmett Till story. The exhibit shows how African Americans chronicle their history when it is ignored by the mainstream press. For Culture Couch, this is David Seitz. Culture Couch is made possible by a generous grant from the Ohio Arts Council. And today on the Best of Dayton Youth Radio, we'll listen back to an interview from just last year. DeLaron Daniels from the Thurgood Marshall STEM School talked to his grandpa Jim, an African-American veteran of World War II. Grandpa, what year did you enlist in the Army? They called you in. You didn't enlist that time. They called you in. That was in 1943. Like I say, it was pretty hard. It was pretty hard. It wasn't easy. Uh, when you're out, when you're around 18 years old, so I'm 94 years old now. What was it like being in the war? It was a hard job, hard and dangerous. wasn't easy. My grandfather's name is Jim Guy. He's not my biological grandfather. He became my grandfather when he adopted me and my older brother Dalen as his grandchildren. He was one of the first people to hold me at the hospital after I was born. I had did this interview with my grandfather and. It was pretty amazing what he was telling me. Like, he told me how dangerous it was and how risky it was. And on the ship, you're loading and unloading live ammunition, so that was dangerous. That stuff could blow up any time on you. So that was dangerous also. And we stayed in our little pup tents, like like the Boy Scouts had. And at nighttime, they, the Japanese, they'd be shooting all around you and everything like that, you know, shooting over the tents like that. How did you feel about the Japanese? Uh, about the Japanese? Yeah. They were just like the Americans. They had to do what they had to do, I guess. They had their orders, and just like the American people had their orders. So you couldn't blame the guys out there fighting much, because there they was young guys out there fighting, too, so they didn't come on their own. They, they, was, they was ordered to go, you know, like that. He told me a lot about what happened. He said that I remind him of his brother. He told me that his brother was gunned down during the war. What is the most intense memory that you have of the war? We went to the Philippines, so that's why they're still fighting in the Philippines. And it was uh, we had to stay on the ship, and uh, it was dead people floating all around in the, in the water out there. And then too, we had to stay on the ship to get the beach cleaned off because they had uh, their minds on that. To step on one of them, it'd, it'd blow you up, you know, like that. He's brown skinned and he's very smart. Even when he was younger, he never smoked. He has light brown eyes and he's bald and walks with a cane. And he also used to make the best chicken I've ever had in my life. Like, it was perfect. My favorite memory of him was when I was 14 years old. That whole week, we were just passing time and creating memories. Why did you enjoy sharing your military stories with me when I was younger? I was thinking about joining the Army myself. Oh, well, I think you you might have something to think about when you, you ever go in there. Did you get the GI Bill to go to school? Well, no, no. Well, black people, it's hard to get anything like that. I tried to get it, but I never could get it. I would like to say thank you, Grandpa Jim, for telling me your stories and for answering my questions. And okay. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And I love you. 
I was 14 years old the last time I spoke to him in person in Dayton, Ohio, before he moved to Texas. I didn't know he had moved until after school one day, and my mom told me that he was moving away because he kept getting sick and there wasn't anybody else to take care of him. You have amazing people in your life. Just because they're old, that doesn't mean you could look down upon them, you know what I'm saying? Because they have done great things before you were even born. They're important people in your life. There are not many black World War II veterans still alive to this day. For Dayton Youth Radio, at Thurgood Marshall, this is Dale Rondegas. That story was called The Last Detail, produced by Daleron Daniels from Thurgood Marshall STEM School. Special thanks to Nathan Shields. Daleron's Grandpa Jim and thousands of black veterans who fought in World War II were denied the promised housing and educational benefits that came with the GI Bill. You can learn more about this story by visiting our website, wyso.org. For Dayton Youth Radio, this is Basine Blunt. This story originally aired in 2019. DeLaron is now a high school senior who looks forward to supporting his family after graduation. Well, Americans love parades, Super Bowl winners are celebrated, the 4th of July, and traditionally veterans of wars. In the late 1960s and early 70s, though, returning Vietnam veterans were met with scorn and humiliation. Today on Veterans Voices, we hear from a Dayton High School teacher who is honoring Vietnam veterans with her students. Bridget Fetterspiel is interviewed by Seth Gordon of the Veteran and Military Center at Wright State University. Can you talk a little bit about what brought you to do the We Love Our Vets event? Where did that come from and what does it do for the students? You know, Veterans Day is their holiday. And so I wanted to come up with another holiday that we could bring in veterans and show their appreciation. And honestly, we should do it every day of the week. But so I came up with Valentine's Day because we love our vets. Um, Oh, I'm going to forget the guy's name. But uh, Will Rogers said, we all can't be heroes. Some of us have to sit on the curb and wave as they walk by. And I thought, that's great. We can get some flags and I'll line the children up children, their high school students up in the hallway because you don't see it when you walk into the school. You walk down this hallway and then there's a turn and at the turn is where the parade begins. We'll walk them through there and we'll wave the flags and cheer them because some of these guys did not get a parade when they came home and specifically our Vietnam vets. So um, the World War II vets, they'll puff up their chests and walk through. I've watched guys get out of their wheelchairs and walk through, waving, shaking hands. And I'll just watch these guys tear up. Several Vietnam vets over the years have just told me that was so moving. You know, I didn't know if I could walk all the way through because it was just, you know, I didn't get any welcome like that at home. And even, I mean, let's face it, our Afghanistan and Iraqi vets aren't getting their parades you know, and even Korean vets, nothing, nothing like that. So then they get settled onto tables and we do um, like a speed dating with the vets that five or six students sit down at a table with the vet. There's a map for geography lesson and pictures that they can bring in and certain questions that they can ask, like where'd you serve and what'd you do and why'd you go? And, 
you know, and then after 10 minutes, we ring a bell and the students get up and go to a new vet. So it's like speed dating and they get to talk to six different vets and the veterans love it. Um, yeah, it's a good thing for my, my students to experience. And I've tried to share it with other schools to get it going, you know, pick a holiday. We're lucky to have our vets on, you know, St. Patrick's Day. We're thankful for our vets around Thanksgiving, something. So it's a great. How personal is this project for you? Very personal. It's made me, it's definitely made me a better teacher. Um, and I feel such a responsibility to make sure that there, these stories are stored and saved for the future. And I feel a real, real responsibility to take care of those people that I've given so much. And it's hard not to, I think this is the part that chokes me up, it's hard not to love all of them. Mm-hmm. They're so. They've dug in deep to something that so few people do um, and to see them – Mistreated and misunderstood. Yeah, is hard. Right. That was Bridget Fetterspiel and Seth Gordon. This conversation took place at WISO as part of StoryCorps' Military Voices Initiative, which visited the Miami Valley last summer. Veterans Voices on WISO is presented by Right Pack Credit Union with additional support from CareSource. This story was edited by Will Davis. Communities across the Midwest have been devastated by the opioid epidemic, but there's still a lot of misunderstanding about how opioids affect our bodies. From Side Effects Public Media, Carter Barrett reports how an unusual museum exhibit tackles this issue. Opioids may sneak in like spies, but given a chance, they can turn into a conquering army. The Indiana State Museum's new exhibit is called Fix. Inside, there's a small kiosk with a monitor playing firsthand accounts of people who have struggled with addiction. One of them is Jose Ramos, a former anesthesiologist. I met him at the museum on the exhibit's opening day. We walk near the monitor and settle in near an area that compares opioids to other addictions, like caffeine or shopping. No one ever decides one day, you know what, I'm going to wreck my life. I'm going to destroy my career. I'm going to destroy my marriage. Um, And I practiced 10 years without a hitch until, you know, the pressure started getting to me. And and one day I thought, you know, just this once. Ramos, who is now 55, had access to drugs at work. Soon they had a powerful grip on him. Imagine someone holding your head underwater and you're drowning and you're desperate for a breath. That's how desperate you are. After a year and a half of using opioids like morphine and fentanyl, he was caught because he left a vial and syringe in a staff restroom. He was convicted on drug charges and lost his medical license. And I thought, you know, I need to share this because, um, you know, there is hope. Uh, This is a disease. It is treatable. Dozens of people shared similar stories for the exhibit. Museum CEO Kathy Faree says that's essential for people to understand this crisis. Hypotheticals in this particular situation um, are not authentic. And we also spoke with some young people who said, you know, don't tell us Susie something something because we don't we don't really want to hear that, that we can't relate to that. What we want to know is how are people really dealing with us? The exhibit also has art installations, games that explore cravings and a giant canvas brain. We want with bright colors to really lift up 
uh, the the sort of visuals of the exhibit, so that it's bright and it's not dark and it's not in the in the recesses. It's not something to be shameful of. This is exhibit designer Brian Mancuso. He says the museum reached out to over 35 groups for advice. They wanted to make sure the museum's design didn't further stigmatize addiction. Mancuso says the exhibit shows substance abuse is a disease and not a character flaw. Current events exhibits are always super hard. It's always a moving target. It's easier to talk about something that happened 100 years ago or, you know, 10,000 years ago. Farid says the museum helps people understand substance abuse and how it plays out in Indiana. And providing this sort of context and resources is critical for the future of museums. On opening day, Randy Davis drove an hour and a half to see the exhibit. He runs a recovery support group in rural Indiana. It's got a little bit of the history. It's got the present. Uh, We still haven't found the answer how to eliminate the future, it looks like we're going to have with this. But uh, I think it just gets the mind and the heart stirred by the personal aspect with the videos. Ramos says these personal stories show how people can overcome addiction. This gives him hope. If you are able to recover from this disease, you are going to be a superhuman. He plans to start a new career in psychotherapy and addiction counseling. For SideFX Public Media, I'm Carter Barrett. SideFX Public Media is a news collaborative covering public health in the Midwest. I'm Jerry Kenny. That's it for this edition of Why So Weekend. Many thanks to all for tuning in to today's program. We'll meet you back here next Sunday morning at 10 at 1030. Now it's time for the Book Nook with your host, Vic McCunis. <laughs> <laughs>